Today's guest, Hilary Turnipseed, has turned a bachelor's in history from American University into a 15 plus year career, helping companies in and out of the tech industry find and hire talent. Having worked for the likes of Axios, Black Girls Code, Discovery Communications, Blackboard, Women 2.0, and these days on her own as the founder and president of Hill Street Strategies, Hillary helps companies not just hire talent, but build stronger, more inclusive cultures. When Hillary isn't recruiting top talent, she is often found volunteering for groups like Women Who Code, Tech Rebalanced, or speaking on podcasts like Developmental, or even at DC Startup Week, at least when DC Startup Week was held in person. So whether you've ever wanted to be a tech recruiter, or perhaps you wonder what happens behind the scenes in the hiring process, or you simply want to pick up some tips on how to get your next job, be sure to listen in as we catch up with Hillary Turnipseed. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Welcome to Developmentor. So great to have you here. Thank you for having me. We were just chatting before the show here. And for our listeners, uh, Hillary actually came to me as an introduction from Taylor Poindexter, who was an earlier guest. And I think in Taylor's words, she said, what was your words? She was your favorite tech recruiter. Is that right? Or you were her favorite tech recruiter. Is that I'm right? the least annoying of all the recruiters. I think that she deals with it. least <laughs> tolerates me the most. <laughs> least annoying of the, the tech recruiter. That's that's high praise coming from an engineer. So uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. It, it's such a small world. I, I still can't believe that sometimes in this space. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I like to say, even though I'm not an engineer, I can probably play one on TV. And so I think that's why uh, I've been able to really build the network that I have. And so I'm very grateful for uh, Taylor making the recommendation and connection. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we always love referrals on this show. So by by all means, for our listeners, if you know somebody who you want on this show, just please do reach out. Well, with, with that, uh, let's segue in here because, you know, a history major turned recruiter. I'm curious, how did you get your start? And then how did you also find your way into recruiting in the tech industry in, in, in particular? Because obviously there's lots of industries that you could do recruiting in. As you mentioned um, in my intro, I graduated from American University as a history major. And so my introduction to American University was through my idol, Judge Judy. Ah, (laughs) And so I, I think like everyone in my era at that time, we all wanted to go to law school, probably. Very quickly, I realized that didn't really want to continue to go to school after graduating. I wanted to take at least sort of a year off. And the first job that I got out of school was with a retained executive search firm. And so it's sort of one of those feeder industries where it's a little bit sales focused, sort of like an insurance agency sort of thing. But I realized that there was a lot of research that went into it and a lot of interaction with people. And I love people. I consider myself just sort of an organic connector. And so I stumbled upon this industry that I didn't know really existed. I did not go to school to recruit or for HR. I never really thought that that was in my, I didn't want to have the negative conversations that came with HR. I loved having kind of those happy ones. And so recruiting was that way of really me, you know, making an impact for a business, but also an impact in someone's life and really getting them kind of their ideal career opportunity. And so 
it was something that I just sort of fell into accidentally, but wound up absolutely loving it and did the agency life for a little bit, but really wanted to support one brand. And so I went sort of in-house, joining in-house sort of talent acquisition teams before um, eventually going on my own um, about a year and a half ago. So it's been a quite the journey, but yeah, yeah, sort of an accident. <laughs> well, and, and that's fantastic. And I, you know, obviously when I hear about going on your own, but I'm also curious, you know, you, so you, you mentioned you kind of, you know, you, there's a lot to be said for just getting that first job, but I'm also curious then how has your career mindset evolved? I mean, you're in this business of helping people with their careers. How did you think about your career as it developed? Yeah, so I think it's pretty easy to get sucked into a more transactional mindset in recruiting. And so for me, it was really important for me to link the importance of people with the overall business strategy. And so I view people as sort of, you know, your most valuable quote unquote asset within an organization. And so I thought about my career path and growth. I specifically was thinking about how I could lean into more business savviness and really understand the overall kind of product roadmap, go-to-market strategy, and the types of personalities and backgrounds and people, humans, that really could get that done in the most efficient way. And so... For me, I, I think I just I just love learning and I love meeting people and just and solving problems. And so for me, the more opportunities I had at the seat at the table and really developing kind of a strategic partnership with hiring managers and executives and ultimately founders to really help bring their vision to life. And helping them build that team to get them there, that mission always got me excited. And so when I thought about my career journey and every move that I made was incredibly intentional, Mm. even though it might not have always been the right opportunity at the time, I always made something out of it. But for me, anytime I felt like I had mastered something, like I sort of peaked, like I thought, you know what? Okay. I use sort of company milestones, whether it's raising a round of funding or some sort of growth or initiative is sort of, you know, that's the deliverable. So anytime I felt like, okay, my job is done, or I got the company to a really great point, that's when I felt like it was time for me to make a move. Can you uh, drill in on that? Because that's fascinating to me. Like, how did you recognize that moment? And then, uh, you know, what did you do about it? Like, is there like a concrete example of one of these inflection points where you said, hey, it's, you know, it's time to move on? Yeah, I, the longest sort of tenure in my corporate career was specifically with Discovery Communications. And so what most people I think fail to realize is just how big discovery is. Yeah. <laughs> you have everything from the Discovery Channel, Science Channel, TLC, Cooking Channel, and it's an international company. And so the sky was the limit in terms of opportunities, whether it be the types of roles or networks that I would support or internal groups or external or location. And I had the opportunity to work internationally, you know, just a lot of really exciting opportunities where I didn't get bored (laughs) pretty easily. Mm. So I had sort of a bored boredom factor that I think I knew sort of when things sort of peaked. But when you work for such a large organization, that's really, really structured, it's easy to sort of slip into sort of comfort and monotony. And where I felt I was in my career was I wanted to take a bit more of a risk. I felt like if I wanted to retire at Discovery, I could. And I realized that that wasn't what I wanted. At least Mm -hmm. it was the easy way out. And I, I didn't want to go that route yet. And so I sort of took a leap, an intentional leap, um, where I knew I wanted to work for smaller organizations. And in my view, the smaller the organization, the more impact that I can make and the less siloed the organizations typically were. Because in larger companies, recruiting often works pretty separately from an HR person. 
And so that sort of level of disjointedness didn't really work for me long term because I always strived for that bigger picture, that macro view, so that I can know how to really sort of implement. And so for me, the only way to really do that was to seek an opportunity where I would have no choice but to be a part of those strategic conversations. So I took a risk of leaving a very comfortable, sort of stable opportunity to step out of my comfort zone and really learn in a way where I was sort of thrown right in. And so that took me on sort of my startup journey (laughs) without having to move to the Bay Area. um, I was able to really find a really interesting startup community building in Washington, D.C., where I um, where I live currently. And so it was sort of an opportunity to really experiment, try things that you've always wanted to. But, um, yeah. you know, in a larger company, you might not have gotten that opportunity. Nice. Well, so what's an, what's a, maybe an example of one of those experiments that you were actually able to do at a startup that you weren't able to do at a larger company? When it came to, and this was specifically when I sort of transitioned into more of the tech world um, and really constantly hearing this notion that it was a pipeline problem. Yeah. Um, you know, especially with the community work that I, that I do. And, you know, when I meet people like Taylor and I'm like, it's not a pipeline problem. Like it, it, it's a people problem. And when I recognize something that sort of, does it make sense to me that it's not true, but I go down the rabbit hole of really proving, you know, people wrong. I love that. Right. I love being challenged. And so, but in order to really do that, you kind of need resources or sort of that kind of openness from a hiring manager <laughs> to remove certain unconscious biases that often come with recruiting. And that is something where, Going outside of your comfort zone in terms of looking at where you hire from, where you post from, or the types of questions that you ask in an interview, and really identifying areas within your process that you could sort of tweak to maybe get a different result. These were things that, you know, when you're in this sort of community, this tech community, especially now in a pandemic, you know, you have to really lean on your community and really share best practices. And so I found that there were a lot of things within interviewing and recruiting that Silicon Valley startups were doing that I was intrigued by, but I also saw a lot of gaps in that. And so it was more just kind of using some of those strategies, but sort of tweaking it in a way where you can sort of customize it. But I often find that in really large organizations, changing a process is impossible, let alone changing kind of a tool that you use like an applicant tracking system. And so I was always looking for ways to work smarter and not harder. And when you identify areas to really sort of improve that sort of low hanging fruit, if you're in a large organization, it's often hard to um, kind of have that say (laughs) and sort of make that impact. And so, so that's where it really, I think, comes in from more of a recruiting and sort of internal operation side. Yeah, no, I, I think that's so true. And was, uh, just for our listeners to fill in some background here, ex- explain what is the, the pipeline problem or the, you know, the cop out that is it's a pipeline problem. Explain that a little bit more just so our listeners have some perspective there. I think it, it's in the context, but I want to make it explicit. So when it comes to building a diverse team, you know, there's often that big question of how, how is diversity defined? Is it men and women, racial, ethnic diversity, left-handed, right-handed? You know, it's a really big question. And so when I work with organizations, I really focus on helping them define that question first. And so my viewpoint is that your workforce should mirror the product your community is sort of serving or the problem that you're solving in the community that it's serving. And then looking at kind of doing a bit more of an employee census of sorts to really see the bulk, the makeup of your organization, and then identifying 
areas that would complement that because you want mm. people who are going to add and innovate to your culture as opposed to kind of fitting within. And it's proven that diversity um, breeds innovation and improves the financial return. And so when it comes to tech specifically, there's often this notion that there's a limited sort of candidate pool of racially diverse um, sort of minority candidates, maybe a, a senior level, or maybe there's only kind of, you know, folks with boot camp grads and non-traditional backgrounds. And if you hire a person from a non-traditional background, you know, they're probably not going to be successful or you're potentially lowering the bar in terms of skill. Right. There's a lot of just sort of narratives, both consciously and unconsciously that really come up in sort of the interview process from inception. If the moment you look at a resume, you automatically create a narrative. And when you're a minority, you're when you're a part of a marginalized group where you're often fighting for a seat at the table, you know, and I can speak to this as a, you know, black woman we're often terrible at really advocating for ourselves and marketing ourselves. And, you know, when we just have a resume where we can really articulate all those things, but we often are made to doubt our capabilities. I mean, imposter syndrome comes up in so many different areas within this. And so when we think about the pipeline problem, it's a combination of, Hiring practices within organizations that often have built in blinders and blind spots. You hire what you're comfortable with or what's easy because you have that rush to solve bias and you're not being intentional with where you're looking. Or, you know, your process is so rigorous and your job descriptions are so lengthy and intimidating that it's probably preventing people from applying. And there's a stat that I loosely sort of like to use where women apply to roles where they meet 90 to 100% of the requirements, or as men, it's usually 10 to 20%. And so if you just take that one stat into consideration, you know, your job descriptions alone could be preventing that pipeline from coming through. And so all of this to say is that Sometimes you need to change up what you're doing and be okay with being a little uncomfortable or taking a little bit more time to be intentional with how you hire because the people are out there, but it's often you're not looking in the right places or you don't necessarily know what you're looking for. No one's really taught how to interview. You're usually you know, emulating or sort of mimicking the experiences that you've had in the past. And I can't tell you how many times I've had candidates just be so discouraged during the interview process because it is so broken that they often want to get out of tech because of it. And so this is where it's recognizing that interviewing is a two-way conversation. And especially when everyone's going after the same quote-unquote diverse candidates, this is where you have to recognize that as a company, you're not going to be a fit for everyone, but also as a candidate, your gift isn't meant to be shared with everyone. And so I do a lot of coaching around job searching with intention because it should be a fit, but also advising companies on how to really define what success looks like for them and what characteristics thrive in the culture that they know. Yeah. No, it's so true. I, you know, and I think I, if I recall correctly, I have a, and you even said it in your, uh, in what you were in your answer there, this, uh, this idea that you're culturally additive and not just a cultural fit. I think that is been such an eye opener for me as well of like, you know, Hey, it's not just about, does this person fit exactly in the, in the same way that everyone else fits? Because frankly, then like, why would you need them? You already have all, all of the, exactly. the things it's about thinking about how do we, expand it out so that we actually have a better, stronger culture. We have better skills. We have other skills. We have different kinds of skills in, in looking at a problem. And that can be a real eye-opener from the, hey, let's go get somebody who can code this specific thing at this specific way. And it's like, you know, that that's not additive anymore. There's no innovation there when you are surrounded by people who look and think like you. 
Not sure how to ask for that raise at work? Perhaps you're perplexed on whether you should change careers or not. Maybe you're debating whether you should get another degree. Or perhaps you're not quite sure how to negotiate for equity at your startup. Listen up, because we here at Developmentor are launching a new topic-based episode format that'll air once a month as a bonus to our usual interviews. In each episode, our panel will tackle the toughest topics in building a successful career in tech, as well as discuss listener-submitted questions, all with the goal of providing you deeper insights into how to navigate your career in tech. So if you have a question on your career that you'd like answered, drop us a note and we just might answer your question on air. Head over to developmentor.com questions and fill out the form to submit your question or you can drop us an email at hello at developmentor.com. If your question is chosen to be read on air, we'll send you a thank you gift. Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player to catch our new monthly bonus episodes, as well as all of our regularly scheduled interviews. You know, I think you, you mentioned in there this searching, how did you, I'm not, I'm, With intention? I wish, I, yeah, I wish I, I wish I could play back the tape <laughs> in the moment, but, but you know, this give, give our listeners a couple of tips on how to do a job search intentionally. What is, what is one or two things that you just routinely find yourself telling your customers or your, your candidates uh, in order to make them more effective? Yeah, I think it's important in going into any conversation. I always recommend just having conversations because it's good practice um, in terms of really honing in on kind of listening to your gut and giving yourself some game film to really kind of help you de-risk the decision-making process, especially with where we are today, um, you know, in this new normal and kind of unemployment rates. It's really, it's a complicated market right now. And so when I say applying or career searching with intention, it's really about doing that self-work to really identify environments that you can thrive in, but also thinking about what problems you really want to solve. If you're money motivated, you're not going to be satisfied. And what I find now, and so it's an interesting stat, but right now we have five different generations in the workforce right now most of it being kind of the millennial generation. And then we get into sort of Gen Z where compensation is not really a factor. It's more career development opportunities, sort of that seat at the table a little bit more so. And what are they going to learn? How are they going to grow? And so I often advise, especially if you're unemployed, you know, there's that that desperation of like, I just need a job. I just need a job. But it's that desperation that that shows up in an interview. And that is not how it should be because it should always be regardless of two-way conversation because you as a candidate want to ensure that you will be set up for success. And so I often arm candidates with certain questions to really kind of ask to make sure that they're interviewing companies just as much as companies are interviewing Mm. them and vice versa. I often advise companies on certain questions to ask to really get to the root of the problem. My favorite interview question for a hiring manager, it's a question more around self-awareness is asking a candidate, if you came with a warning label, what would it say? Ooh, I like that. You steal it. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And then from a candidate lens, it's asking them to really define their culture, how they would describe their culture or what sort of characteristics, or if you could pick one trait that every person needed to have in order to thrive in that environment, what would it be? Because as exciting as a startup sounds or you know Google or Facebook or wh- whatever it is, as exciting a brand might be, that doesn't mean that their environment is going to set you up for success. And mm-hmm. that's where it's recognizing, again, that your gift isn't meant to be shared with everyone and that is okay. No is a powerful, powerful word. And walking <laughs> away from opportunities that, that don't serve you is really important as well. And so that's where I really try to work with individuals to really define 
their secret sauce and what gets them excited because then that energy that shows up in the interviews and that helps align, you know, your job applications and the conversations that are, you're having and you're not, you're not wasting anyone's time, both yours right. and that person. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's not that complicated, but the hardest part is really doing the work to figure out what it is that you want and what it is that you need. And we have nothing but time right now. And so this is where it's like, it's okay to do the work. It's uncomfortable, but that's where you have to lean into that discomfort because that's where the change comes. Yeah, for sure. Well, so and you mentioned, you know, so you, you, you help candidates tease these things out. I want to kind of come back to to you and your career and your role, because I think you're actually the first recruiter I've had on the show. And, oh. and so what, what what are some of the key skills that go into this? Like somebody might be listening to you right now and say, Hillary, I want to be a tech recruiter. I mean, what uh, what would you tell them are some of the key traits, key skills that might lead them into a role like yours? So to start, you have to love talking. <laughs> <laughs> you you don't at all. I can no, tell. I, I barely can hold a conversation. <laughs> I identify as sort of a people expert. I love people. I love learning. And I love meeting people where they are. You know, and I think, you know, being a history major and learning about different cultures and backgrounds and storytelling, those are the things that get me excited. And so recruiting is a way for me to kind of piece all that together. And it's just like a ton of transferable sort of skills. And so I believe firmly, like anyone can be a recruiter, but to be a great recruiter, you have to have sort of your own rules of engagement. And that is, if you're going to represent a brand, you have to have to be all in with that brand because otherwise you're selling a lie. Recruiting is sales at the end of the day. Yeah. But I am radically transparent. <laughs> I don't like surprises. I don't like hiring someone and them saying, Hillary, you lied to me. And so mm -hmm. I think my recruiting <laughs> approach is more just trying to scare people away. And if they're still interested, then I'm like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> but I think that you have to love the brand or be behind the brand and the leadership in order to be great. Because when you're authentic and true and really make that a two-way conversation because you're really just de-risking the process as much as possible, I think if you can really be that strategic business partner, but also have an element of empathy and humanity and just sort of, you know, that really sort of soft skills sort of people component to it and really picking up on cues. I mean, I've gone down the rabbit hole as it relates to people <laughs> work. I am doing human design work now and looking at birth charts and really, and every sort of personality assessment known to man to really understand why people respond the way that they do, how people with certain characteristics choose to receive feedback. So, and for me, that process of learning and development, I practice myself first. So I'm incredibly self-aware. So I love that warning labeled question because I don't view it as a weakness. I view it as, hey, these are the things that I'm really good at. These are the things that I know I can improve upon, but that's okay. Put me in a role where you can leverage me for my strengths. But if you need something else that's going to push me too far where I don't feel like I'm being the best version of myself, then then that's not really for me. And then I'm going to get burnt out and I'm not going to be happy. And life is too short. And so that's where it's just conditioning yourself to be okay with being a little bit uncomfortable to yeah. hold out for what you're meant for. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, and I love those, this, those key skills. I, I know in my own time, I've, I've, I've had a lot of good relationships with recruiters. I've found many a job through a recruiter, which is kind of a, something that not a lot of engineers have said, I think, but yeah. you know, like you can find that partner who can communicate with you, help you, especially in engineering. I think we don't always tend to be the best communicators. So having somebody on your side who is a stronger communicator can be super helpful. Um, well, so then digging in a little bit more here, you know, I mean, Hillary, it's, it's one thing to work for someone else, right? I mean, yeah. you, you've had, you've worked for discovery, you've worked for a bunch of other companies here. Tell me a little bit more about that 
I'm going to take a leap and go on my own. Tell me the founding story here behind Hill Street Strategies. What was driving that? Yeah. So I think with any major change is usually like a life event. (laughs) And so I was just going through a personal life shift with kind of moves and sort of things like that. And I just sort of hit this moment where it was a combination of my previous employer kind of securing another round of funding. And I had scaled the organization from roughly, gosh, I think it was like 30, 30 to 40 to about 150. Mm. And I literally was just exhausted. Mm. (laughs) But I also realized too, I was like, wow, like I did all of this. And what did I really get for it? <laughs> and so this was where it's like, you know what? I th- And I was able to build one of the most diverse engineering teams, you know, within the district, but also within that industry. And it was something that I was really, really proud of. And I felt that I had sort of cracked the pipeline problem. And so when we had reached that kind of next level of sort of funding and we were going to sort of stabilize and not have a lot of like rapid scale, I felt it was sort of the right opportunity where I was leaving them in good hands. But also going on my own was something that was always on my list of things to always want to do, but I was always really sort of scared of really taking that leap and taking that risk into the unknown. And I mean, now we're, you know, with where we are today, you know, I definitely feel way more prepared now to operate in ambiguity a bit, but I think ultimately it was working at a startup, really helping that company build and really realizing the bigger impact that I can make in helping other companies build diverse teams, I felt my gift was meant to be shared in a bigger way. And there's no time like the present. And so for me, it wasn't a money motivating decision or anything like that. It was more me realizing that, hey, if I'm given an opportunity to really be creative, because it's hard to really get into early stage startups sometimes, specifically in DC, there's only so many opportunities to really get in on the ground up a little bit. And so what I wanted to do was just sort of be available and be flexible in a big way to really help, whether it's an early stage startup or an existing company that is just looking to do things a little bit differently and willing to release control a little bit and try things out a little bit differently and experiment. And I can bring my secret sauce to that. That's what got me excited, really seeing more of those tangible impacts in both people and in companies. Like that's what gets me so excited and energized. And I wanted to be able to help in a larger, in a larger way and um, support the DC tech community that I've grown to be fond of quite much. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you certainly have integrated yourself in with a number of different groups, which is fantastic. You, You mentioned in there, like, you know, you, I don't know. Again, I wish I could play back the tape, not that we're using tape, but, um, you know, I think you said you, you always wanted to, but there was a little bit of, Hey, am I ready? Or maybe I'm not ready uh, to be on your own. What did you do? Anything practical for our listeners that helped you prepare to take that final leap into the great unknown that is running your own company? Like any, you know, did you you plan out for six months? Did you try it out on the side first via some contract work? Any Anything actionable for our listeners there? Yeah. So where I was at was I pretty much had nothing to lose. <laughs> so, um, so it was sort of, you know, so I didn't have that safety net, but I think that sort of pressure to deliver mm. was really what drove me to really kind of land sort of success. But I also had built so many relationships over the course of my career that it was really just sort of, hey, now it's my time to kind of call in those favors, sort of who do you know kind of thing. And every single um, client or opportunity or introduction has for the most part been from someone that I've hired in the past, because I've always wanted to treat people the way that I would want to be treated. And, um, and so a lot of those connections were really sort of organic and really sort of teed up. And so I felt like DC, I had enough of a foundation and support to really just kind of go out there and try things out. What I will say is that you can plan all you want and it's never going to go exactly how you plan. And I think the biggest characteristic that you need is flexibility and being okay with trying things out 
seeing what sticks, seeing what lands, iterate from there before you fully, fully go to market. Always just kind of try things out. You can start off as a side hustle, get some feedback, see how it goes, or you can just sort of take that leap, but know that what you're quote unquote selling. And for me, I'm the product. I was confident in my capabilities and my abilities. I mean, I'm, I'm a team of one. And so the risk is sort of low risk for me. You know, people say that it's lonely at the top and you should probably start a company with a founder or like a co-founder. I did have a partner in, in the beginning, but we were, it just wasn't, the business strategy wasn't in alignment. And so I think that before you bring in other people, I think it's important to be clear on your rules of engagement of, you know, your ideal customer, your ideal client, what gets you excited, what is motivating you to do this and build this and be very clear around that. And try it on your own a little bit first, because it's terrifying, but you can control how you choose to respond and iterate and pivot. And so Now, granted, this is not going to be for everyone, but I think that, you know, if you can do it on your own and really build that framework and foundation, then the scaling is going to be infinite. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's always upside when you, when you create it yourself, right? Yeah. The the worst case scenario is you just go back and you find another job. Exactly. You're going to be your harshest critic for sure, but this is where leverage your friends. <laughs> your yeah. friends will make great guinea pigs. You don't need to pay them right now. <laughs> you know, they're your yeah. friends. And so always have a second set of eyes to review something, but don't feel so much pressure to have it all together. You know, you got to right. just go. So many people just sort of wing it. And so especially, you know, I sort of try to embrace my inner man sometimes when I go into conversations because you know that imposter syndrome is really real and it comes up and I have to remind myself of what I'm capable of but sometimes I just have to go for it too and just the worst thing that could happen is they say no when I'm in the same position that I'm in and so I always just try to remind myself that it's okay if it's not perfect or exact but you know every anything that's meant for you will come through but it's also not for everyone this is not for the faint of heart Gotcha. <laughs> no, for sure. I know. Uh, I, I can very much relate to that. And I very much relate to the imposter syndrome. I don't think it ever goes away, no matter what your role is. No, nope, and everyone doing. experiences it. And if they say they don't, they're lying. Yeah, even, you know, like I'm sure even the greatest athletes or the people at the pinnacle of their career, there's still a doubt driving them. Well, I'm curious in there, you see, you know, you mentioned, you know, sometimes you got to work through I don't know if the right word is failure, but challenges, et cetera. I'm curious, you know, can you share an example of, of a time where this didn't all work out and how you, how you worked through it? Anytime I've quote unquote failed or been rejected, and I'm a firm believer that rejection is just redirection. When it hasn't worked is when I don't go with my gut. And I am often convinced to do something differently. And that has come up a lot, especially in the beginning and starting my solo proprietorship journey. It is where, you know, I thrive on feedback. I love feedback, but not all the feedback needs to land and I need to take it. And when I doubt myself and I let other people's feedback sort of seep in, I kind of lose my authenticity. And so the handful of times that I went against my gut and either compromised on something or did something a little bit differently or said yes to something when I probably should have just been okay with saying no, which is very hard to do, but it's very powerful. Um, yeah, it, it has not worked out yeah. 100% of the time. So how do you, I'm, I'm kind of curious, because this has always been a tricky one for me too, is like, how do you then balance out too, like at recognizing when it's your gut versus, when when, it's, when is your gut actually telling you the right thing versus when are you just uncomfortable and you need to expand your, your mindset? I mean, that's always been a challenge for yeah. me. I'm curious how you think about that one. So this is where <laughs> I work very hard to separate facts from feelings. And then I really lean in kind of back on kind of the self-awareness kick of like, I know 
if I'm uncomfortable, I can sense where it's coming from. Is it fear of failure? Is it fear of, you know, making a mistake? Or is it fear of if am I coming at it from a scarcity mindset and I need that money? Because it's usually the money piece. That's where mm-hmm. you ignore a lot of those red flags. And in the work that I do, you know, especially around diversity and inclusion and effective allyship and bias, it's been very difficult for me to decipher who is being intentional with this and who's just trying to check a box. And that's something where I think with enough game film over time, you can be sort of confident in certain things and it's not foolproof at all. But you know, this is where I really just try to dig deep and really find out what parts I'm compromising on. And if it's a core thing that they're asking me to do, and it's sort of a principle, which is why everyone should just have rules of engagement. And then you can always just bring it back to that and just see what is driving that feeling. I mean, with recruiting, I think a lot of it is sort of a gut feeling too. Because you're just taking a chance when you're interviewing folks, you see them on their best day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So all you're trying to do is really just de-risk that as much as possible. So it's really around self-awareness. And so if you know that you have this habit of running away from something that seems a little bit difficult, but you know at the end of it, it's going to be so satisfying, then you know what's worth the risk. But if you're like, wait a minute, I don't know if this person has the best intentions for me and this is really more helping them than it is going to help me. I always want to make sure that anything that I do is of equal value or I come out more on the top. (laughs) Right. Interesting. Well, and of course, you know, and and this is the tricky part here with all of this, right? Because that gut feeling sometimes, those are also unconscious biases. Mm -hmm. And and like, it's it's such a tricky one to navigate because I I mean, I know exactly what you mean. And like, you're, you're just like, hey, this doesn't sit right. And yet, like everybody is telling you, you, you know, hey, you need to go left when you know you should go right. And I, I feel it. it. It's it's not a an easy one to do. But at the end of the day, you got to do what fits for you. Exactly. So. And listen, mistakes happen and you just have yeah. to be OK with that. But it's how you overcome that, how resilient you are, how, you know, quickly you pivot and you're like, yep, made the wrong move. Let's pivot. Let's do it. You know, those are, I think what separates success from failures sometimes is that inability to really pivot when you need to, because especially now with where we are right now, no one has any defined roadmap of what to really (laughs) do. So we're all just trying to de-risk, but also reach consensus and really build community to really kind of weather these storms together. And so this is where it's just, knowing that, okay, the worst that could happen is this and just coming up with kind of a mental backup plan. (laughs) But just kind of knowing that, okay, like being okay to fail is probably the biggest thing. Right. Because once you get past that, then it's just nothing gets in your way. The The biggest problem people have, and I suffer this, suffer from this a lot, is we play too small. Especially as women and minorities, we often that, you know, we play too small, we still play it a bit safe. I know every day I play it safe. And I think back, oh, why did I do that next time? Okay, definitely going to do this a little bit differently. And so this is where it's like, you have to make that personal commitment to yourself to really go above what's comfortable for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and in fairness to in, to yourself, this is really hard, right? And and especially when your livelihood's on the line or oh, you got to put food on the table, it, it's it's hard to separate out those economic decisions from the hey, I need to take a risk uh decisions. So, uh yeah, no, I mean, I I hear I know I struggle with that myself as well. Uh I've tended over the years to be conservative. A friend of mine actually unlocked it for me a little bit. He's like, "Hey Grant, like who else is going to bet on you, but you, you know? And it was just like, yeah, like no one else is going to, I mean, they, they might, but it's usually to help benefit them too, which is fine. You know, as long as you recognize it. Right. You know, at the end of the day, you have to have your own back and, you know, the more you get clear on your purpose (laughs) ultimately too, I think that's, that's what lets makes those decisions a lot easier. Hillary, you know, this show is called Developmentor. I would love for you to spend a moment talking about a mentor, a relationship, or a friend or two maybe that have really helped you along your path. Mm, I love my community. 
I surround myself with the different minded people. <laughs> so I'm constantly learning. But from a mentor standpoint, I would say, you know, it's sort of a peer mentor. It's my, my absolute best friend. We are opposites in all the ways, but we complement each other and we stretch each other in the best ways. And we always call each other out when we're playing it safe. So mm-hmm. I kind of consider her more of an accountability buddy. But as it relates to the work that I do in the space that I'm in, I am obsessed. <laughs> it's a healthy obsession with um, the VP of inclusion over at Netflix. Her name is Verne Myers. She is the diversity and inclusion expert before it was even a thing. And so her philosophies around kind of this work around unconscious bias and microaggressions and just where we are in society today. I mean, she has really, I mean, I don't know her, but she has helped me (laughs) really sort of hone in on my sort of craft and secret sauce a bit more. And there was a book that was really instrumental in this journey for me that really made me feel not alone in this space. And that book is called The Memo by Minda Hartz. And it was sort of the response to Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, but written Mm. by a woman of color and what it's like to be a woman of color in the workplace. And what Mm. it did was it really validated my experiences that I think I really sort of shut off. And so it was important for me in this journey of entrepreneurship to really not lose sight of who I was at my core because in corporate America, I think as women, we might often be muted versions of ourselves for fear of not being liked or whatever the environment that we're in, especially if it's a male dominated environment, we're only just probably just a portion of who we are. And so that book really allowed me to kind of own my voice a little bit more and be really confident in being me, all of me, (laughs) and selling that as opposed to an adjusted version of me of what I thought would be safe and comfortable for people to accept. Mm. Yeah, we'll be sure to link that up. It was called The Memo and the the author again? Minda, M as in Mary, I-N-D-A, Hearts, H-A-R-T-S. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll be sure to link that up. Maybe two, maybe three more questions. You know, I I have to ask because you brought it up, but, you know, Hillary, what's your warning label? Oh, so back in corporate America, (laughs) I was not great with open office plans because as a recruiter, I talk a lot. And when I get really excited about something, I get really loud. So I'm loud. I am a loud talker and I am a talker. And so for me, I know I'm not for everyone and I could probably be really annoying. And so if I'm ever annoying, you can just tell me to pipe down (laughs) and I'm not going to be offended by it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that is a good warning label to have. (laughs) I I feel like, you know, see, I I grew up in the Midwest, especially in, in, in Minnesota, very stoic. And then I came to the East coast. And so I've, I've had to get used to, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more loud talking. Out I, here I'm from Jersey originally. Yeah. So it just, it comes out. I can't, I can't help it, but I'm aware of it. And so this is where it's like, I know I'm not going to be offended <laughs> if, if, if I bother yeah. you, just let me know. But sometimes you just got to let me know. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, and then kind of wrapping it all up. I mean, such great advice in there across a number of different things around actionable tips for both hiring and interviewing. What's how do you sum up all of your best career advice? What would you tell, you know, I don't know, 18-year-old Hillary or what do you <laughs> wish you knew about building a successful career? Yeah, I mean, what I would tell myself is you, Hillary, are enough. I think I recognize now for so long in my career, I have played it safe or toned down a version of me, whether it's how I styled my hair, going into work, what I wore, or how I spoke. And I didn't realize how I was just sort of code switching or sort of being a chameleon, I think is sort of the best way to put it. And so 
the advice to really sum it up is, you know, going back to the line that I said earlier is that your gift is not meant to be shared with everyone and that's okay. And Mm -hmm. your company isn't for everyone. You, your leadership is not for everyone and that's okay too. And so, but it's recognizing what you are meant for, where you do thrive and, you know, and what does get you excited. And, you know, and so I think really just living authentically. And I know there's that saying of, oh, do I feel like I can bring my full self to work? But then people take it into, well, does that mean you won't be professional? It's like, wait a minute. No, like what stereotypes are you saying right now? When we say bringing our full self to work, it's creating an environment where every voice is heard and valued. And expectations are clear standard and you reduce that level of favoritism or comfort or, you know, just, you know, this systemic barriers that are often, you know, built that don't really set up women and minorities for success in just being okay with doing things differently and realizing that it's going to be okay. (laughs) You know, those are the things that I think really, really matter is just being able to adapt and be resilient and realizing, hey, this process is broken. So we need to pivot and fix this, but being open to that feedback on how to fix it, that's going to be key. Because otherwise, if you're resisting, if you're not going to trust the process, then you're only getting in your own way. Yeah. Uh, Such good advice in there, Hillary. (laughs) Final question. Where can our listeners best follow you and learn more and connect with you and maybe hire you to help them build a more inclusive (laughs) team? Yeah. So my website is www.com. Hill Street Strategies with an S dot com. And you can follow me on Twitter at H I L L I A R Y T as in turnip seed. All right. Hillary T at Hillary T. And yeah, for our listeners. <laughs> Yeah, with the extra eye. Uh, and for our listeners, we will be sure to link up all of those in our show notes. Hillary, it's so amazing to connect with you. And thank you so much for sharing the recruiter perspective on on a lot of these issues and, and how to help people be more intentional, intentional in their career. So thank you for taking your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer